Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to Psalm 119. And yes, it should be the S selection. It is the new memory psalm of the month. But it begins at verse 137. And that's going to be our portion for preaching this morning. Psalm 119, 137. And I'm going to ask you to stand, whether you're here or whether you're on live stream this morning. Stand with me out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You've commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth trouble and anguish have come upon me yet your commandments are my delight your testimonies are righteous forever give me understanding that i may live well i think that verse 137 of this Saudi portion of Psalm 119 is a tone setter. It's a tone setting verse. We we like to use this language to describe a, a particular way of speaking or acting that is so impressive and powerful and shaping that whatever follows is basically the overflow or the outflow of that tone setting. And here, I would argue that's exactly what's going on in this particular portion of Psalm 119. And the tone setting is signaled in the two statements of Psalm 137, which are essentially overlapping and synonymous. You see, we read here, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. We have two claims here. The first claim is of the Lord's righteousness, and the second is of the uprightness of God's judgments. And there's two key terms here, and they are virtually synonymous. That is righteous, and that is uprightness. The first is applied to God. The first is the assertion here, Righteous are you, O Lord. And it's interesting that the term for righteous in Hebrew literally means straight, not crooked. But morally and figuratively and spiritually, it speaks of conformity to a right standard. That's what righteousness is. Conformity to a right standard. And the thing that is proclaimed about God is He is righteous. And and we don't mean to say by that that somehow God is conforming to some standard of morality outside of Himself. He is the standard of morality. 
God inherently, essentially, and eternally is righteous. And the thing about that is that, um, well, that righteousness of God is inscribed upon His works. They're inscribed upon the creation. They're inscribed upon the acts of providence. And particularly and specifically, they are inscribed and stamped upon His revelation in Scripture. So that brings me to the second term here, which I've already said is synonymous with righteous, and that is the term upright. Upright. Literally, again, it means to stand up straight. Morally, it means to conform to a moral or righteous standard. So it's very obvious here we have overlapping terms. We have the testimony about God according to his character. And now we have testimony about God in his works. And specifically, I want to make the argument that this term here, judgments, is not about God's actions towards creatures and creation. It would be very true to say with Scripture that God's judgments are upright. When God pours out judgments upon creatures and creation, it's always righteous. It's right. It's, it's morally just because we live in a fallen world. But the thing is here, this word which is translated judgments is the word that's regularly used throughout Psalm 119, mishpatim, and it means God's moral case laws. In other words, it's a reference to those laws which you'll read about in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, which are about specific applications of the moral principles of the law to real-life situations. And so when the psalmist here speaks of the judgments of God being right or upright, he's speaking about the very law of God. So here's the thing. As we piece both sides of verse 137 together, we first of all have the declaration or the testimony about who God is essentially. He is righteous. And then the psalm goes on to say in the second part of the verse that that very character and nature of God is stamped on his word. So what does that mean? It means when I'm reading scripture, I'm reading about God's character. God is essentially looking back at me with a testimony of who he is. His character is inscribed right upon his works. And verse 138 explains how that's the case. Where it says, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness. You see, the very way in which God has commanded, disclosed, or revealed his word is according to the manner of his being. It is righteous. It is, as the rest of the psalm says, or the verse, exceeding faithfulness. So right here at the opening or the entry point to the Saudi portion of Psalm 119, you have this grand and sweeping declaration and everything that follows in this portion is the outflow of it. It's the response to it. And so I've entitled our message this morning, Responding to God's Righteous revelation. Responding to God's righteous revelation. 
And we're going to take a moment to see how, first of all, the qualities of revelation are those which are consistent with this character of God, which is proclaimed here, that he is righteous. And then we're going to see the proper responses to this revelation. So two points, the qualities of revelation, the response to revelation. And let's start with the qualities. And there's three of them here, pure truth and righteousness. Verse 140, your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Love is the response. So we'll leave that for just a bit later. But for now, let's zero in and focus here on what is being said about the word of God. And the thing asserted about the word here is your word is very pure. And the word there literally means it's been refined. It's been refined. In other words, this refining is a process of testing and evaluation which produces a conclusion. You see, in other words, the psalmist is saying that the word of God has been refined, that is subjected to testing and evaluation, and the conclusion drawn is this, God's word is pure. The psalmist says something very similar in Psalm 12, verse 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of the earth, refined Seven times. See, it speaks of the the thoroughness, uh, the rigor, if you will, of the evaluation of the word. A sevenfold refining or sifting or evaluating or testing. Well, you have a, a, a similar idea here. It doesn't use a number, but when it says your word is exceeding pure or very pure, it's saying the same thing. It has been thoroughly evaluated what is it that's been evaluated? What is it that's declared to be pure? But we're told here, the word. The word of God. The word of God is pure. And when this particular word is used, it can refer to either the promises or the commandments of God's word. And so essentially what the psalmist is saying is the whole word is pure. The gospel is pure. The law is pure. It's all very pure. Nothing is harmful in the word of God. There's nothing dangerous. There is nothing corruptive. That's the excellence of the word of God. It's pure. It reflects God's character. Notice the second quality, truth. Verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Now, here we come back to the testimony about God again. We were told in verse 137... You, O Lord, are righteous. And now we come right back to the same thing. And here, in a sense, the righteousness of God is is evaluated and, and, and spoken of. It's not just any kind of righteousness. It is an everlasting righteousness. But, but I want you to notice the and here. Because it connects the clauses. And, and the design or the reason or the purpose of the proclamation of divine character is to say that is what is stamped upon and manifested in God's word. And so here we see that God's word is true. Torah is the word. It can refer very narrowly to the Ten Commandments, but, but here I think it is to be used in uh, the broader meaning of the whole revelation of God, the truth of all of God's word. That's what's being proclaimed here. It's faithful. It's true. 
and is honest. Those are all various ways to translate this, but if you stop and think about it, they're all interrelated. You couldn't have a faithful word if you didn't have a true word. You couldn't have an honest word if it wasn't true. You see how they all interpenetrate and interrelate in glorious ways because what we're being told here, when we read about the word being true, it's faithful. And faithfulness of the word ensures the truth of the word. And the truth of the word refers to the honesty of the word. In other words, it corresponds to reality. I think that's important this morning. It's something the church needs to seize upon and to be convinced of and to delight in and to embrace as an absolute non-negotiable truth. And uh, the reason I, I say that is because um, the Bible's brutal honesty is one of its best authenticating marks. I, uh, in undergraduate education, sat in classrooms with very intelligent professors who spent good portions of their time uh, pointing out how the Word of God was full of errors and, and how um, Judaism and Christianity were basically bargain basement ripoffs of other religions of the day. And so they would read um, the revelation of Scripture through the lens of what the contemporary religions were saying and what they believed and how they spoke of its characters. And as a young and inexperienced college student at the time, believe me, I found those criticisms to be hard the repetitiveness of them, the thoroughness of them, the, the intelligence of the arguments presented was, was very difficult until I began to return to a simple truth. God's word is true. And the honesty of the word of God is what helped me begin to build a platform for faith because one of the things about scripture is its brutal honesty. Have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> Remember Adam and Eve. They were made upright. And they threw it all out for poisonous fruit. Cain and Abel, the very first family, was, was uh, riddled and characterized by sibling rival, rivalry, which climaxed in murder. Noah, who was saved uh, on a giant ark, as he responded to the command of the Lord, his first act after coming off the ship was to get drunk and engage in lascivious behavior. Abraham was constantly correcting God, uh, not trusting in his promises, and he pimped out his wife twice. David, one of the great characters of Scripture, called a man after God's own heart, is uh, characterized by multiple and repeated failings, not the least of which was murder and adultery. You come into the New Testament, it doesn't get any easier in terms of truth about the characters of the Bible. Peter denied Christ three times. Jude betrayed Christ unto death. And Paul persecuted the church. You see, there is something about the truth of Scripture. It's brutal honesty that is a platform for faith. Because there's nothing like this. 
you read the manuals of antiquity of the religious, they don't treat their characters that way. If the Bible could be so brutally honest about its central figures, it's probably not erring about its statements of fact. The Bible is true. The Bible is honest. The Bible is not full of lies and distortions because the Bible reflects the very character and nature of God. And because that's true, we can trust it. Third quality here we see is righteousness. We've already been over this word before. Here what we really just want to think about is what about the word is being testified to? And you can see that in 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. I like that qualifier there. Forever. It means unfailingly, irreversibly righteous. Forever. It doesn't end. There's no expiration date to the righteousness of God's testimonies. And, and here when we think about testimonies, we want to remember that this word finds its origin in the very way in which the law of God is described. In Exodus 31, God himself describes it as the, the tablets of testimony written by the finger of God. That's how he describes the law written by the finger of God. In other words, the very law of God, those, those tablets received from the Lord, bear the imprint and the stamp of His fingerprint upon it. We understand that language because every human being is said to have their own unique fingerprint, which means that wherever you go and you touch something, you left this, uh, behind a little bit of yourself. And it says, from here to kingdom come, I was here. It bears the imprint of us. That's exactly what is communicated in the metaphor of the tablet of testimony inscribed upon by the finger of God. Scripture bears upon its face and its stamp the imprint of God and of His character. And so... We read this morning that God's testimonies are righteous. We know that that means that they bear the very character of God himself. These are the qualities of the word. Pure, true, and righteous. And we need to be impressed of the quality of God's word this morning. That it reflects who he is. It's righteous and it's true and it's pure. Because the very stamp impressed upon Scripture, which is God's, means that we have to hold it in the greatest reverence. And that's a critical thing for us this morning to think about. That we are to hold the whole of God's Word in the deepest reverence. Because right now, we are in the midst of a culture where there's a titanic conflict taking place around us about revelation. Whose will you follow? And the battle's not new. In a sense, it goes back to the gates of Eden, right? When Satan comes slithering up beside Eve and challenges her to engage this conflict between revelations. 
has God said? This is when it begins. It's as old as civilization, if you will, of humanity, if you will. And the titanic battle is this. Will you trust God or will you trust man? Will you trust yourself or will you trust Scripture? That duel is being carried out in an all-pervasive way in our culture. And one of those places where we see it today, perhaps the loudest, is in virtue virtue the entire history of western civilization well i shouldn't say the entire history but the vast chunk of it it has been shaped and it has been influenced by christianity and and so the classic definition of virtue that has stood the test of time is that a virtue is a behavior which is according to an absolute moral standard Virtue is a behavior which is according to an absolute moral standard. Well, what is it that's of the essence of the conflict about morality and virtue today? The beginning point is there is no moral absolute. That is the starting point of postmodern theory. That is the characteristic, the the single hallmark. There are no moral absolutes. Yet virtue is everywhere, isn't it? Virtue and virtue signaling is everywhere. That virtue has been reduced to what the talking heads of our society say it is. And so we are being inundated as the people of God with calls for a new herd morality to follow after new virtues and to declare the ones that we've had come from Scripture as old, as out of date, as outmoded, as dangerous, as subversive, as harmful to others and their feelings. Dangerous to society, corrosive of civilization. We need this testimony this morning about God's Word. Because the only form of virtue and morality is that which is grounded in God and which is revealed in His Word. We cannot substitute divine morality for herd morality and a system of lame and flimsy and weak ethics which cater to the self and interests of false doctrine and false theology and false gods. It's phony. It's harmful. It's dangerous. And the church needs to make sure it understands this morning where it gets its values from, its morality from, its definition of virtue from. It comes from here. The Saudi portion of Psalm 119 is very clear. You, O God, are righteous and upright is your law pure, true, and righteous. Being convinced of the quality of the word now, we think about the response. And there's two responses given here within this portion, a negative and a positive. And under the positive are a few different responses, but I do think it's useful for us to begin with the negative. Because it's kind of tone setting in itself. 
as we begin to think about the qualities of the word, there are predictable ways in which that word will be responded to based upon whether it's responded to in faith or not. And you can see the negative response. It's uh, those who refuse to embrace God's word in faith. 139. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your word. Here's the problem. He says, zeal has consumed me. That's the, of the deepest, most visceral kind of passion. It has consumed him, which means almost put an end to. It's exterminated him. He's saying, I, I, I can't watch the evening news without screaming at the television. I'm consumed with my passion because of the lies and the propaganda that's being spewed. I can't watch it. I can't bear to even look at what's going on. And the thing that agitates him is expressed here. Because my adversaries have forgotten your word. And the adversaries here are spiritual opponents. They are unbelievers. And the thing that he um, testifies to against them about their response is they've forgotten. And the essence of the meaning of this term is not absent-mindedness. It's not some sort of amnesia. It's an intentional forgetting of the word. It's a willful choice to close the eyes and the ears to the word of God. That's what it always is. And the reason why it must always be an intentional rejection of the word is not because there's not enough evidence for Scripture being God's word. We've just read about the fingerprints which are all over the Bible. Show to us, it's from the Lord, it's God's word. Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, what is the heart of unbelief? It's to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Truth. It's not like they don't know. It's a willful suppression of the truth. And why are they willfully suppressing the truth? The Apostle Paul says, because they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of, of corruptible man. The forgetting is willful. It is to replace the absolute moral standards of righteousness with something that men come up. It's a willful, intentional effort. And that's what we see all around us. And the warning is, as Calvin says, to not be coldly affected. The warning is to not be coldly effective, affected. And I do think in some sense that we are, we are um, up against um, some difficulty here because uh, a defense mechanism that Christians sometimes flee to is indifference is to become so overwhelmed by the deluge of godless and immoral behavior and of the powerful sound of the cacophony of voices all around us to just retreat and pretend we're utterly indifferent to the moral chaos and the truth twisting. And Calvin says, we must not be coldly affected by the grievous offenses committed against God. Indifference is to join the confederacy of rebels and just not wear their uniform. 
people of God, now is a time for us to own the truth. Now is a time for us to, to be willful in the remembrance of the truth and not forget it. Ours is a time to begin to, to testify about the folly and the corruption and the stupidity of human virtues and morality because they're killing our culture. They're destroying the world around us. They're lighting a match and pouring gasoline on top of the fire and burning down institutions because of the stupidity of unbelief. We must not be in league by silence. We must not be in league with the confederacy of rebellion by silence. What is the positive response to the word now? Beginning in 140, we can see it here. Love. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. This is where we began our exposition. We were dealing with the qualities of the word of God this morning. And we know that pure means refined. It's been tested and evaluated. It's been shown to be pure without defect. The word, the whole word is that. But, but I want you to notice the response here that the psalmist makes. He says, I love it. But, but before we engage that, just, just think about how he describes himself. He says, your servant. Your servant. And, and the word literally means a bond slave. Somebody who's owned by somebody else. And beginning to think about that, our minds immediately connect to the New Testament. We think about those Statements of self-description of the Apostle Paul, bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which again means to be owned by somebody. And what Paul acknowledges openly to all who will hear him is he's owned. He's a slave. He's a bond servant, bought and paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Here's where the psalm begins to connect us with Christ and the gospel because the expression of commitment and devotion and love for the word of God doesn't flow out of his own impure heart. His commitment and expression here flows from the fact that he's owned. The spirit of God has changed his heart and taken out the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And he says... I'm your servant because you paid for me. Paul connects that redemption, that crimson red cord of blood to obligation when he says, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is an affirmation of faith and the expression of it is in what he does in response to the pure word of God, he says, I love it. I love it. This is not just an expression of conviction, although it is that. And it's, it's good to have convictions about the word of God, to, to know that it's holy and that it's infallible and that it's inspired and that it's inerrant and that it's authoritative and that it's sufficient. Those are all wonderful convictions. But he doesn't just say that about himself. What he says about himself is he loves it. It is an object of affection for him. 
And in saying that, he tells us this morning how, how our attitude ought to be towards the word of God. It leads us to a very simple and pointed and direct question. Do you love the Word of God? Do you love the Word of God? As a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, as someone who's been paid for with precious blood, do you love the Word of God? To help us think about why we should love it, we just go back to the beginning of our verse. Your word is pure. You see, the way to stoke affections for the word is to remember the qualities of the word. Because when you begin to think about the word and its breadth and its totality and its substance, you'll begin to see that there is much to love about the word of God. You have the, the purity of the promises of mercy and divine grace. They're never intermingled or mixed with works. Think about that. They're pure. It's pure grace, pure gospel. We have the wisdom of the word. And when you think about the wisdom of the word and the stupidity of unbelief, you begin to realize that this wisdom of God's word shines like a bright light. Who wouldn't learn to love it? Because of the purity and the soundness and the reasonableness of his wisdom. You think about the law, and the law may terrify us because it, it pierces to the, to the guilty conscience again and again, but... But even then, we should be grateful for the law of God on account of the moral clarity of it and the unchanging absoluteness of its standards. It's not a morality that's decided upon. I was listening to an expert in neuroscience debate another gentleman last week about God. And he said, you know, I don't mind reading the Bible you know, get a few of our experts in the same room together. Can't we come up with something better than this? You generally don't hear people say it that straightforwardly. But they all mean it. They all think it. Can't we just get a few of our best experts together in a room today? A committee of people, if you will, and we'll come up with something better than this. No, you couldn't. The Word of God is purified seven times. No. It's very pure. The servant of God loves the Word of God. The second response is remember. And this is kind of interesting here. Uh, verse 141. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. And I think what captures our, our thinking here a bit is the self-assessment because it's so brutally honest and small. That means to be of a low status. And then he says he's despised, which means to be regarded with contempt. There's nothing that he claims for himself, is it? By, by nature, he says, this is what I am. I'm, I'm small and despised, and it 
it reminded me immediately of what the apostle said to the Corinthians. He says to those boastful and arrogant Corinthians, he said, consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak to confound the mighty. It's not our personal privileges. It's about what God does by grace. He teaches us how to think of ourselves. Not many mighty. Not many wise. That's who he was. And then he says, and this is how I respond. I don't forget your precepts. I don't forget your duties. He remembers. It's the same word that we saw in 139 where we were told that the adversaries caused the psalmist to be consumed with zeal because they forgot the words. It was intentional. And I want you to notice here that little negation, I don't forget. It's the circumstances which are so interesting to us, aren't they? I'm small. I'm held in contempt. And yet, I love your word. I don't forget it. Sometimes people think, uh, they even say out loud, you know, I, I could believe in God if my life hadn't have been so hard. I could maybe believe in, in Scripture if circumstances had been a little bit easier. That's what we tell ourselves today. And, and yet here the psalmist says, my circumstances couldn't be any worse. And yet, I don't forget. It's a powerful statement of embracing the Word of God. The other response uh, we find here is delight. It's in 143. And it's very similar in tone. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. See, uh, the first is that I'm small and nothing, and I still love uh, your word and remember it. Now he says something kind of similar, but it's even a little more painful. Because when you read come upon me, the verb literally means they've sought me out. He's passive in it. It has come to him like a heat-seeking missile after a target. Trouble and anguish has come upon him. Distress and hardship that's so painful and so unsettling that his emotions are raw. And yet, what does he say? I delight. I delight in your commandments. The word of God takes the sting out of his sorrows. A delight. We've told a culture all around us that the way you overcome being depressed is you take chemicals. We've been told that since the beginning of this pandemic that Prescriptions for antidepressants have quadrupled. And what people are experiencing is not unreal, it's very real. 
And we don't laugh at the emotional and psychological pain because we don't wish that upon people at all. To love our neighbor as ourselves. But the reality is when a person forgets God and his law, part of what happens is this distress. The psalmist says, I know what that is because it's come from me. And then he says, but even though it's come upon me, it's my delight. People of God, if you're struggling this morning, and I, I suspect many of us are, because it's difficult, if not impossible, to be utterly untouched with the uncertainty, the anxiety, the trauma, the pain. All of us are being affected in some way. I, I, I said to somebody recently that when we look back on all this in its aftermath, we're going to see that people are walking around with the effect of emotional PTSD because of this. It's true. But what is our defense? What is our help? It's Christ. It's the Word of God. It's the truth. It's the whole of Scripture. It's the law, it's the gospel, it's the wisdom of God, it's the light of Scripture. So this morning, if you're in the same place of trouble and anguish as the psalmist testifies that he is in, speak to yourself the words of Scripture, that the peace of God which passes all understanding guards your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. It guards it. One of the things that we have to do as believers is to take up this word of God and let it do its work. We need to speak the promises and the truth of God's word right into our ears so it settles into our hearts. The way to fight the anxiety and the depression and the, and the foulness of mood and the anxiety and the fear is not in your strength. It's in Christ and his word of truth. It's with the peace of God. It's thinking upon the things that Scripture says are honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good reputation and of excellence and worthy of praise. And at the end of that long string, the apostle says, think on these things. We have to treat ourselves with the word because within this word is grace and truth in Jesus Christ. The psalmist says we're not victims. We're not the roadkill of trouble. We're not the casualty of accidents. We're the servant of Christ. And because of that, there's a way for us to respond in faith. To love the truth and delight in it. And finally, we say prayer 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Back to the tables of stone that were etched out with the fingertips of God. And he says those testimonies are righteous. And in view of that, he says, give me understanding. You know who else prayed that prayer? The wisest man who ever lived, 
besides Jesus Christ was King Solomon. 1 Kings 3.9, at the outset of his reign, the Lord said, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon cried out in prayer. He said, give me an understanding heart. We hear echoes and shades of it here in 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding so that I may live. If we're to live a life that is godly and peaceable and orderly and free from being enslaved and in bondage to our sin, this is how we do it. We pray this great short prayer. Give me understanding that I may live. Because the will of God is for us to manage life and negotiate life and meet life and live life, not with a blank mind or one filled with intellectual clutter, but understanding. Understanding. The way we respond is prayer. Give me an understanding heart. We love the Saudi portion of um, Psalm 119. I trust we'll enjoy memorizing it and singing it in our praises because of what it tells us about. God who is righteous and his judgments which are upright. It teaches us as his people how we live in view of that word. We love it. We remember it. We delight in it. And we live by it. That's how faith embraces Psalm 119. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, as we just uh, take measure of its glorious qualities and perfections, it uh, is like a mirror which points right to you. We thank you that your face shines in the Lord Jesus Christ and Your imprint in the face of Christ is all over your word, as he is the great lawgiver and redeemer. So help us look at these qualities, and as we take a month to memorize, would would you help us to lay this beautiful and glorious section of scripture upon our hearts so that he will teach us. Teach us about you, teach us about your word, and teach us how to be in order that we may glorify your name. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.